0: I don't think I met a zine publisher who didn't have a strong commitment to their vision, whatever that vision was. And so every zine publisher I ever talked to, up from the person who published 50 copies of their zine to the person who was printing thousands of graffiti magazines, all had a very clear idea that they had something to say and they wanted to say it and they wanted to put it out there and see if other people wanted to hear them say it. Sure.
1: What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Dr. Clint Johns here. Clint is a cognitive psychologist but has a formal title which is Senior Quantitative Researcher at Pearson over on the West Coast. But Clint, this this ever says for me, we came across each other when you had another title and it was Zine Czar of Tower Records. We're going to talk about zines and psychology today. Somehow we're going to make those two topics work. Plant wonderful to actually speak to you in the face for the first time uh, and, and possibly to speak to you in person for the first time in 20-ish years.
0: That's actually that's funny because Zinzar was a kind of a passing. The official title when I was at Tower was Director of National and International Newsstand Operations. But on my business card, after I took over the division, it went to a Chief dude, And that was a title that I inherited from the guy who actually started distributing zines at Tower back in the early 80s.
1: It's incredible. So we're going to talk about Tower Records. We're going to talk about zines and somehow connect it to all the interesting characters you would have met. But I I just need to sort of, I don't know, provide a little bit of context from where I stood as a young person making a magazine in that Clint's name, for those of you who don't know, would appear on message boards as the person who would, at Tower Records, (laughs) which for... Other people who don't know was a massive company at one point. Okay. How many cities was was Tower Records in? Tower Records in?
0: Dozens of cities in 14 different countries, um, occasionally doing a billion dollars a year in record (laughs) and video (laughs) and DVD sales. And, you know, zines and magazines were a part of that. I mean, they weren't a huge part of it. But um, in a good year, we would sell $25 million worth of magazines and zines were, you know, and independent press were. Yeah, probably twenty percent of that. So we were selling kind of a lot of stuff that other people yeah. just didn't know existed.
1: Yeah, and and Clint was the front door. If you ran a small like underground rap magazine from australia clint was like the only way to get in and the thing that i know you used to get a lot of credit for this in public which was probably a small public back then 20 years ago is like you actually took care of the people who made the magazines you made sure that we often got paid maybe it was 30 40 percent. i don't even know what it was but we would get paid a certain amount of money when the magazines arrived which is different from pretty much any other major company or distributor anywhere and you singularly obviously with tower records played you did play such an important role in in people who were really passionate about things documenting things building community about things before the internet are you aware of i've read an interview or two about you a long time ago but are you aware of kind of the ripple effect the clint john's ripple effect that happened around the world because of you
0: Um, I mean, I'm I'm vaguely aware of it. I mean, it's been a long time, right? And I'm lucky because I got to kind of step into that role. It was established by a guy that I've described as an erratic genius named Doug Biggert, who was the first guy who kind of was in charge of magazines at Tower and really started bringing zines in. But I met Doug back in 1992. I had been working at a B. Dalton bookseller when I was in high school, and when I went to college in Berkeley, I said hey look i worked at a bookstore let me do the books and magazines here and that brought me to doug biggert's attention and he called me one day and asked me why the store was selling more graffiti magazines than usual and i said not only are we selling more graffiti magazines than usual we're selling more magazines generally because i'm putting them in front of people you know i'm not just hiding the magazines in the back corner i'm taking them and i'm putting the graffiti magazines throughout the record racks you know i'm taking the morrissey fan magazines Morrissey was less objectionable back then but I'm putting the Morrissey fan magazines by the Morrissey music and I'm putting the Rolling Stones fan magazines by the Rolling Stones CDs and and so you know once you start paying attention you can get people to also pay attention and Doug Mm. noticed that so that started a long relationship.
1: What were some of the biggest graffiti magazines at the peak of Tower Records which were the ones doing really good international business?
0: Probably the one when by the time Tower really started to have problems elsewhere in the business, because I mean, the magazine business in particular was always fine. You know, it was never going to be the magazine business that made Tower sink or swim. So our numbers were always good. But at the time, I think I had started importing almost 3000 copies, an issue of a German graffiti magazine called Style File. And it came out two or three times a year. It might have been four times a year, but I think it was only two or three. And it was run by a bunch of guys. The one whose name I remember most is Crixel was his tag. And even after Tower kind of went away and I had gone on to other things, he still used to send me German holiday bread every year for Christmas for a few years after that. Um, But Style File was big. Gosh, it's been a long time since I thought about the graffiti magazines. I mean, my main thing with the graffiti magazines was that I was really interested in trying to get as many graffiti magazines from as many different places as I possibly could because the styles were so different. When I finally got a Greek graffiti magazine, I was so happy because it just didn't look like any of the other graffiti magazines. I mean, it was graffiti. You could see that it was graffiti art kind of writ large, but it was not like the the German graffiti magazines. It wasn't like the Mexican graffiti magazines that I finally was getting. But uh, the graffiti magazines were among the best-selling things that we ever did. And all of those were independent artists. All of those were people who they didn't have big company backing. They didn't have money. They just had art, really, and they just Mm -hmm. wanted to get it out Mm -hmm. in front of people. Well, the only other thing I wanted to clarify is that I made sure you got paid I made sure the overseas people got paid because we typically bought from overseas people without the ability to say, well, this didn't sell. We're returning it to you because overseas, I mean, you can't you can't ship things all over the place like that. So it was easy to say to the uh, accounts payable people at Tower, hey, we bought this. This is the end of it. So pay them. No don't don't wait don't wait 90 days just get the check to them as fast as you can. Yeah. For anybody who was based in the US where we could handle returns we had slightly different arrangements where sometimes we okay. paid a percentage up front and then we paid the back end based on sales and stuff like that. Everybody always got something up front.
1: Oh it's amazing. I mean it's it's it was great. I remember the I think I got a check, at least one check, right? And uh, it was it was great because it meant it meant that we had a level of confidence, or that I had a level of confidence in a certain number that I would sell. I, I think you used to order a few hundred, three, four hundred, maybe, maybe up to six hundred. Probably I can't remember. probably four hundred.
0: That sounds what I would
1: do. Yeah, and because um, when you're printing a zine, we'll call it a zine, you know, you have to pay up front or very close to the moment of printing, right? Maybe you get 30 day terms and let's say a 100 page full color magazine back then might've cost, let's go with like 10 to 20 grand to print, right? So you've got right. to work out how to get that money, which means you need to sell advertising. Most independent magazines are not covering their printing money with advertising. You're probably not even breaking even, to be honest. I know some zine empires or some zines had catalog empires where they'd make money from selling records, but even then, you're still introducing a very complicated business where you publish the magazine and then you have to sell, you know, send out vinyl, and they that could get busted, all that kind of stuff. Um, right. But it, yeah, I, I don't know. It was, it was always really exciting for me to actually be in Tower and to have things sent over the other side of the world, shipping would add a couple of dollars per magazine as well but to get paid, a little bit of that money meant that you were able to be a bit more confident about making your next issue because for a lot of us it was issue by issue you know.
0: Well I mean that was, I don't think I ever met a zine publisher who made a dime off what they were doing. It was always I hope I don't lose too much money doing this thing that I think is important enough to tell other people about. Mm. I mean every now and again you get something that Gets bigger, you know, a giant robot magazine, which was, you know, just a kind of Asian American culture zine when it first started and it eventually got big and it got glossy and it got bought and got kind of more national systematized distribution, which even though they did, we still maintained our direct relationship with them. And whenever that kind of thing happened, there was another another zine. Denny's probably doesn't think of it as a zine, but it was a zine called Muscle Elegance. And it was, you know, full color, full spread. And what it was was an adult magazine that featured female bodybuilders. And we sold a ton of them. And they eventually got picked up for national distribution by our RCS, I think, or big top publications. And Denise used to call her distributor and say, Tower Records pays us, Tower Records sells eighty or ninety percent of what they buy from us. Why can't you also do this? <laughs> So And I was perfectly happy to let them use Tower to beat up the big distributors who didn't really deal with the small publishers in ways that were always positive.
1: Yeah, yeah. I oh, There's so many questions I want to ask. I, I do want to get into specific zines and types of zines and the psychology of people who make zines. But also, I, I want to talk about 2001. Because 2001 seemed to be... This big inflection point in the music industry, in the publishing industry, the internet was becoming more prolific. Obviously, September 11 was a tragedy, mm. and it had it had a lot of repercussions for people I know in the music industry in, in the U.S. They, you know, they weren't performing much. It was harder to put out music, and then different distributors started to kind of get bought up or they started to die. How did 2001 affect uh, Tower Records, potentially with a focus on the Zine business?
0: Gosh, man, that's 20 years ago, mainly what I remember about 2001 is that I actually flew out of New York City on September 10th and woke up to my assistant calling me at home to make sure that I had made it out of New York the next morning as Hmm. things were happening in New York. Much of the rest of 2001, to be perfectly honest, is a bit of a blur. What I can tell you is that between 2001 and 2006, Tower was really working hard to try and secure enough financing to make sure that it didn't do what it ended up having to do and kind of de- declaring liquidation bankruptcy. And so 2001, 2002, I know we did, we did a reorganizational bankruptcy somewhere in there and, you know, shuffle all the pieces around and got some financing so we could continue. But through all of that, the zine business was always solid. The magazine business was always solid. And in fact, we actually started doing more business with the magazines. It was really just an extra way to say, okay, how should I put this? Our philosophy, regardless of what the record people ever thought, was we make enough money selling Rolling Stone that it doesn't matter if we make money selling zines. If we do, it's nice. But... Rolling Stone and Time Magazine and all the glossy mainstream stuff, we sell those so that we can sell the other things without worrying too much about it. And what ended up happening after September 11th and after things really started to get tight in record sales and DVD sales was magazine sales and zine sales. I think 2001, between 2001 and 2004, I probably brought in more zines than we'd ever distributed before, ever. Hmm. It was a solid, a solid place to be.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, I had some distributors in the US go under. We didn't get paid. And, you know, it was all, all kinds of delays and issues. And, you know, it, it was a little bit of a different experience, which might be magnified by the fact that um, I was on the other side of the world in Australia trying to do business with a company. You know,
0: there were a lot of zine distributors that couldn't hack it. And it wasn't for any reason except that they didn't sell Rolling Stone. So Tower was the largest distributor of independent press publications, underground press publications in the world. And they were for many years. There were others like Ubiquity and Desert Moon and places like that. And the problem that they had was that they didn't have larger accounts, larger magazines that were guaranteed sales, and they didn't have guaranteed retail distribution. I mean, Tower, for all our involvement in the independent press, Tower was super mainstream. You now, I mean, nobody went to a Tower record store expecting to find underground bootleg, you know, Velvet Underground CDs. But because we had access to that mainstream audience, that allowed us to take this underground stuff and put it in front of people that otherwise would never have seen it. And when you looked at Desert Moon or you looked at Ubiquity. They were selling to lots of indie bookstores. They weren't expanding their audience in a way. They were really kind of, in some sense, preaching to the choir. They were selling to the indie stores that had indie audiences, the people who weren't gonna go to Barnes and Noble or Borders or mm-hmm. B. Dalton. And so rather than saying, Here comes a kid from high school, went to Orange County schools in Southern California and watch Beverly Hills 90210 and had never heard of Stealth Magazine you know, or something like that, never heard of Style File. They, just, you know, they go to Barnes & Noble, they never discover these things. The indie distributors like Desert Moon, they didn't have any access to those people, but we did. Mm-hmm. And so we got to sell things not only to the underground and the independent-minded people who knew that they could find this stuff at Tower because we've been doing it for a long time, but also to the people who didn't suspect that we were putting stuff in front of them, that they just would never find any place else.
1: If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. So for those of you who don't know, I used to publish a magazine. It was called Stealth. And to hear you say it like that, I'm almost tearing up. I miss those days. They were so exhausting, but I miss them. Why do you think graffiti zines (laughs) did did so well for you?
0: That's a good question. Tower was at the forefront of kind of merchandising hip-hop to non-hip-hop audiences, to non-native audiences. And I don't think it's an accident that our number one selling magazine since it was published... You know, it was Rolling Stone for a long time. You know, you got maximum rock and roll, got some serious numbers, you know, for a little while. But The Source, The Source magazine, you know, which was the Bible of hip hop culture and rap music for years and years and years. At the time, The Source was Tower's number one selling magazine month in, month out since The Source began. Up until Tower closed its doors, The Source was the number one selling magazine, period. And I think the overlap between hip hop and rap And graffiti art, street art, effectively is what it was, was so big that there was a carryover effect. One of the other things that we distributed, and I don't even know if you know this, we distributed graffiti videos, Style Wars, Dirty Hands. You know, we were the first people who were putting these videos in front of people. And we sold breakdancing videos as well. And all of those things were right next Mm. to the graffiti magazines. So I tried to expand what it meant to be an independent publication.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't even know what the language is, but I know that if you're working in a big uh, CPG company, that they might call what you did category management, where you're trying mm. to like reframe what a category is. And, and for you, I guess what you did with your, what would you call it, point of sale placement of products is that you're really trying to grab as many purchases from the one person who's got a similar use case from those purchases, if that makes any sense. As opposed to have them scattered around the store based on categorization that might make sense to the business, but that actually makes the customer do more work to get the thing that or the things that they want. It's super interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And the thing that is looking back, the thing that is most astonishing to me is that Doug before me and then I, we did all of this in our heads and with pencil and paper. We didn't have analytics. We didn't have you know complicated stock management systems. We had a database that we made ourselves and it really just was pull up the magazine and it would pull up the title and a list of stores and a list of the quantities each store got. And that was the extent of our computerization. But we were really <laughs> low tech for a really long time. Yeah, It was all in my head. I had to know the stores. I had to know the buyers in the stores that were in charge of putting these things out and in front of people. I had to know the publishers. I had to know the product. And so I was calling and talking to people in the field all the time. I mean, my average week was spent talking to zine publishers, the larger distributors that I had to buy Rolling Stone and whoever from, and then talking to the stores and being in constant communication with the stores. That was the single most important Mm. thing for us.
1: Uh, So interesting. Well, so you've since become a cognitive psychologist, right? Or were you already one? I am. Tell me about the zine makers. What, it, what and you can't just say, "Well, psychology is a very individual, personal thing." No, we are going to make some big, sweeping statements right now. <laughs> Tell me about the, the psychology of, of the zine makers that that you found most interesting.
0: Well so okay so the the standard disclaimer is I do cognitive psychology which really is looking at thought processes, right how people think and I specifically focus on how the memory system works and how you're actually reading and putting together language and understanding what that means. Having said that, I don't think I met a zine publisher who didn't have a strong commitment to their vision, whatever that vision was. And so every zine publisher I ever talked to, up from the person who published 50 copies of their zine to the person who was printing thousands of graffiti magazines, all had a very clear idea that they had something to say and they wanted to say it and they wanted to put it out there and see if other people wanted to hear them say it. Um, and there's lots of people who have talked about this probably more cogently than I can. But there are lots of little subcultures in... Underground press. So you would have the lit zines, which were people who were writing poetry and writing stories and things like that, or you would have the uh, music scenes, which you know they could be more general things like Paste magazine, which is you know kind of a, a big thing now, or Pitchfork is one that started as a print independent press mm-hmm. scene to perzines, which really were just about whatever the person who was writing it happened to care about. There are all these kind of different genres of zines. And I bring that up only to illustrate that even though there are all these individual voices where, you know, I want to talk about music. I want to talk about literature. I want to talk about art. But the common thread is I want to do this. I want to do this my way. I don't want to have oversight where somebody tells me, no, go do, do it differently. And where I'm willing to compromise is to try and get it in front of people. And that's why you could come to Tower and you could say, hey, I want to put this out. I don't have any money. How do we do this? And Tower could kind of step in and say, we can pay you something. Let's see how it sells.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So commitment to vision is important. What's another trait that you think is relatively shared by the zine makers that you were around?
0: In, in many ways, another trait is fearlessness. They were willing to put stuff out and have people react to it. And I, I know that we had zines that people reacted badly to. We had a zine. This is going to sound more off color than I intended to. But the zine was called uh, We Like Poo. But it wasn't a fetish magazine. It wasn't sexualized in any way. It was just by somebody who was just fascinated by excrement. And so it just had lots of pictures of excrement. And that person actually was the magazine buyer in one of our Seattle stores at the time, which is how we ran across (laughs) it, because she was putting it out and she was just selling it in the store on consignment. It never occurred to her that anybody would care. And Doug found it and was so delighted that it existed that he said, I bet we can find other people who are interested in that and put it out. It wasn't a lot of copies. We probably carried 80 copies of it maybe 90 copies of it every time, but we sold all of them, you know, almost nothing got returned. And every now and again, we'd have a store where somebody would call and say, Hey, we've had customer complaints or I'm just not going to put this out, you know, and that wasn't limited to, to zines necessarily. I mean, we occasionally would have a manager who would get all up in arms about the fact that we carried high times, right? Just because, for some people, marijuana is a moral issue. And it's weird to think about a manager of a tower record store having that particular position about marijuana, but it did happen. High Times, our number two selling magazine for years and years and years, by the way, after the source. But anyway, yeah. fearlessness, being willing to put something out there. And this was also, I mean, for a lot of this, there was no way for somebody to get negative feedback beyond saying, okay, I you know, don't have my magazine in the store. Or if somebody wanted to complain directly to somebody, they had to write them a letter know because it was pre-internet but fearlessness kind of in order to have that vision in order to take the step to say i'm not just going to have this vision i'm actually you have to take an affirmative step right you're not just someone who's sitting in an armchair thinking your wonderful thoughts you think that your wonderful thoughts are worth putting down on paper
1: so you use the phrase wonderful thoughts right which hints a little at the ego how would you describe the kinds of egos that you came across
0: Oh, zine publishers were just people. I don't think I ever met anybody that I I thought, well, that person's you know a little bit too much. In part, that may have been because I myself was perfectly fine being an egomaniac. I think about the fact that I took over the newsstand division at Tower and I started talking to zine people and really working with publishers on on a large scale in April of 1998. In April of 1998, I was 24 years old and. I look back at the way that I worked and how I worked with my employees because I managed the distribution warehouse in addition to all the other things that I was doing for Tower. And I guess insufferable is a pretty good word, you know? I mean I, I was always very polite about it, but I wasn't I wasn't easy to get along with. Look, I would not handle things now the way I handled them then. So okay. if you kind of are starting from this sort of place where you're very assured and you make the rules. And I was always very sure of myself. And I always had the ability to say, you know what, this is too hard. I'm leaving. And I didn't, I don't, I can't remember ever actually doing that, but I always knew that I could. And that's part of the power dynamic, right? Everybody knew that if I didn't want to talk to you, I wasn't going to talk to you again. It never came down to that ever. But when you go into a conversation with somebody and you need them more than they need you, you tend to be polite. And so I would guess that zine people may have had to put up with stuff for me that they might not otherwise have put up with because they needed me to put their zines in front of people.
1: Yeah, no, I I hear you. I hear you. I think. Look, I'm gonna write so we had commitment to vision is number one, fearlessness is number two. I think I think you have to have a bit of ego to create a zine. So I'm gonna take wonderful thoughts as a bit of ego and then and four, <laughs> I think politeness is is interesting. I mean I've you know, I've met other people who've made zines and magazines and I don't know if I would describe them all as polite, but it's such a it can be or it was such a grueling process, you know. I would just carry boxes around Sydney City from record store to record store, hoping that I could get five in here, 10 in there, 20 in there. You can't enter those stores with a ton of arrogance. No one's going to want to deal with you. And there's something, That's true. there's like there's like a quiet desperation where you're like, oh gosh, I hope the world likes this. You know, like, right. uh, so I think a lot of, yeah. a lot of zine makers probably carried that around with them, even if since then they've gone on to create massive and very wealthy empires and they might not still have the same trait uh in them any any other final traits about zine makers that that come to mind
0: um nothing that I would say kind of categorically it's the same thing with people. You had some people who were willing to put up with stuff, and as much as we got right, we didn't get everything right and so every now and again a check wouldn't go out or somebody's shipment wouldn't show up or their shipment would show up, but it got stuck in the warehouse and didn't make it out. It didn't happen a lot, but it happened, and on those cases, you just like with people, you had some people who would get really upset about it, and some people would go, okay, well, this happened, and how do we move forward from here? And that was always, of course, kind of tinged with the towers, the big kind of gorilla in the room. So I, you know, how mad do I really want to get about this? To our credit, when that happened, I made sure people got paid. But I think fundamentally, I never met a Zine person that wasn't willing to try and work something out. Nobody was so hard headed. And I think that comes, I mean, because it could have been, I'm sure that when you were going into record stores trying to get people to carry stealth, you would run into people who managed their consignments that you just did not want to talk to because they didn't treat consignments particularly well. You know, they knew that they were doing you a favor. They weren't going to pay you anything. They were going to give you the privilege of putting your magazine. And if it sold great, and if not, you know, it was no, nothing to them. We didn't do that. For all our flaws, and in this case, I'm talking mostly about me and Doug, we, generally speaking, were genuinely interested in trying to help and trying to put things in front of people.
1: Yeah, I hear you. you. Yeah, I think the stores that were most supportive of of, um, what I did were just more immediately connected to the community that I was around on the one hand, and then secondarily, that they might have stocked the music that we were talking very specifically about. And so, even, you know, the, the main store in Sydney at the time that I used to go through was Next Level Records. I think at our peak, they might have sold, let's go with 200 copies, right? Small stores like Fat Beats equivalent in um, in Sydney sort of mm-hmm. place. They're like, you know, five kids will stumble into after school and try to listen to like the B side of a, a record that there are only 100 copies of in the world, right? There was also this sort of working together where a magazine like ours could sell more music forest, all like that, because they're not really making much money on it. Well, back then, it was like a $10 right. Australian magazine. There's not a lot of profit in that. So it's really about getting people in and then the stories you can tell around the stuff that's being written about to sell other stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see all of that. Um, I'm interested in making a bit of a hard turn since you are a cognitive psychologist. What's your thing? What are you most focused on in that field?
0: The way that I think about it is uh, my time at Tower was like career number one. And then I shifted out of that and I went to graduate school and I got this PhD and I was a research psychologist for 14 years or so. And that was kind of career number two. And now I'm working for Pearson, this education company, and this is career number three. And so when I was a research psychologist, what I focused on almost exclusively was how people comprehend what they read. And so I know a lot about spoken language and how we understand what we're hearing, but I mostly was focused on reading and how you decode the symbols that you see on the page and translate them into words and how you string those words together to create meaning and then how you string those sentences together to create a larger narrative representation in your brain and and stuff like that. So that's what I did for many years. And I focused primarily in the last few years of that on looking at individual differences in how people comprehended things and whether or not individual differences in people's memory capacity had anything to do with whether or not they were able to successfully understand what they read or whether or not people's ability to really focus and pull things out of memory without interference. Um, I actually tracked people's eyes as they read words on computer screens and based on how their eyes moved you can say certain things about how they're growing information out of the page. So what I do now is really statistical analysis. My job is to work with Pearson's products and say, okay, here's this thing that Pearson sells so that people can learn psychology or economics or Java programming or something like that does it work? Or do we have any evidence that using this stuff actually leads to better outcomes than people who don't use it? Or do we have evidence that people who use it in a particular way do better than people who use it in a completely different way so that we can make recommendations on if you want to learn Java programming, make sure you do these things. So that right now, my job is to try and make sure that what Pearson is doing actually helps people learn stuff.
1: All right. And can you share anything that you've come across through your own analysis or research or that you've come across through other people's research about this topic that surprised you?
0: Well, maybe if I take a step back, so rather than talking about whether the research surprised me, because the research mostly doesn't surprise me, it's just a matter of kind of figuring out what the statistical parameters are so that you can do solid research. Mm-hmm. The thing that surprised me is that coming back into Pearson after being in kind of this academic setting for the middle part of my professional life, Coming back into Pearson was, in some ways, like going back into the same environment that I was in when I was working for Tower, because at Tower, I was off in my own corner doing magazines and doing independent press stuff and zines, and then there was marketing, and marketing was across the parking lot and completely different building marketing and advertising. And so if I needed something, I had to go over there, and I had to work with those people and try and make them understand things. About this world that they knew nothing about, and what most people don't know about towers, that you know, people can think about the stores and the kinds of people that you saw working at the stores, and when you got to the main office, the main office at Tower, the people who worked there were just folks, you know, they were suburban folks, and so the advertising people were these group of people who they weren't out in the stores and they weren't out in all the different environments and they weren't working with the artists and they weren't working with the publishers, they were in their own little space and they were working with the big record companies mostly. And so when I joined Pearson, what I found that is a big part of my job is to be the guy in the room who knows how to do the research, who knows how to really see If something is going to work or it's not going to work, or if you want to see how something works, how do you do that? So I end up working with marketing teams. I end up working with product development teams. I end up working with people who want to say, okay, well, we want to see if this works. We're going to do a test. We're going to talk to these 10 instructors and we're going to do a survey. And I'm the guy who says, that sounds nice. 10 people aren't going to tell you what you want to know. You need to do a bigger study than that. You need to go get certain groups of people. And we have to talk about who those people are.
1: Hmm. interesting to hear that you feel there's commonality between what you're doing now and 20 years ago and it, it's something that like i used to do a radio show make a magazine i now do a podcast and write books and post on the internet like it's it's really similar but i i had a i had a phase there where i was definitely doing other stuff which was was fun but i think for people as you hit your 40s and 50s sometimes you just go what did i enjoy doing when i was 22 or when i was seven? Oh, oh my gosh i could do something like that a, a little bit again right which is a A bit different to what you're talking about, but kind of connected. Um, Let me, final question, just for the sake of sentimentality, for the sake of nostalgia, what do you miss? What do you miss about not being involved with the zine slash magazine world anymore?
0: I miss being able to put things in front of people that they never expected. When I used to go to the record stores, I would go into the record stores and I'd find, you know, Q Magazine and Mojo or Time or The New Yorker or something like that. And I would take them out of that front pocket and I'd put them in the back and what i used to tell people was if somebody wants time magazine they're going to find time magazine they're going to find out the counter they're going to find it no matter where you put it in the rack it's if somebody wants style file or somebody wants stealth magazine you bury that in the rack they don't even know that they want it they have to be able to see it and Hmm. that's not something that happens there's there's not really a good way to do that anymore really
1: no no you
0: know the internet doesn't let you do that people have to find you on the internet
1: well and, and also you look at the, you know, the major cities, at least in the US, there aren't many retail experiences where that's even possible because everything's pretty homogenized. You know, it's sort yeah. of what you're talking about gets mimicked a little bit by say, uh, an Urban Outfitter or whatnot, but it's not, you know, it's it's it's, it's different.
0: Do you know, that Urban Outfitter sells Tower Records t-shirts today, right now, you could go to Urban Outfitters and get a Tower Records t-shirt <laughs> just surprises mm.
1: me hilarious yeah and i feel like there needs to be a name for your behavior because it's like trolling but positive you know moving the (laughs) magazine trying to (laughs) to trap someone in a positive experience yeah i i (laughs) I I think positive
0: trolling should be a thing i i approve of that
1: i like it uh oh well oh well i'm gonna end the nostalgia there because we got a be you know relevant in the future right uh clint so good to chat with you G- getting into tower records as a little zine maker magazine maker from sydney it meant so much to me and the fact that you did try to take care of us in the way that you could despite apparently being slightly difficult to work with in your language <laughs> paraphrased by mine um yeah like it brought, did bring a sense of uh of joy to my life i could always sit back and go huh we're in Tower Records. That's cool. So on a personal level, thank you for giving me that opportunity. And, and thank you for being a place that really eccentric, fearless, risk-taking, unusual brains could try to put themselves into publics that they were not close to. Like, I'm sure it's changed a lot of people's lives. and So thank you.
0: No, you're, you're very welcome. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that that all started with the guy who founded Tower, Russ Solomon, who died not too long ago. But Russ listened when Doug said... We can sell enough Rolling Stone that you should let me do this with the small presses. Russ said, mm. fine, go do it.
1: Totally, totally. Well, sometimes when you're trying to do something that doesn't exist in a big way in the world, you, you you need someone or a group to go, hey, keep going. And Tower was like a pretty big, hey, keep going for a lot of us. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Clint, thanks very much for joining me on Sweathead here today. i um, sure we'll have a chat about your uh, cognitive psychology and education <laughs> research in the future. But I appreciate you being here, my man. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Please Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead. <laughs>